Today we're, we're skipping ahead just a little bit into chapter 4, and we're really going to study the parables of Jesus and the idea of Jesus the storyteller, that Jesus was a storyteller. And we're going to look at four parables in specific. We're going to look at the parable of the sower of the seed. We're going to look at the parable of the lamp, the parable of the seed growing, and the parable of the mustard seed. So a lot of um, agricultural sort of metaphors, a lot of those types of parables today. We will look at each parable individually. We will look at the meaning, at least uh, what, what Jesus intended for those parables to mean. But what I really want to do today is rather than be very granular or very um, uh, microscopic in our analysis of the parables, I really want us to have a big picture view of Jesus the storyteller, Jesus the one who not only used parables as a way of teaching deep and profound truths, but the one who is actually writing the greatest story that's ever been told. And so I want us to keep a big picture view today as we look at Jesus, the storyteller. And in fact, uh, we're going to look at all of these verses. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 1 through 34. But I really want to anchor today's teaching on the last two verses of this section, verses 33 and 34. And here is what those verses say, just to, just to kind of frame up where we're going to go today. It says this about Jesus. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that you give us your word to teach us and to instruct us and to correct us and train us for righteousness. And God, I am today particularly mindful that the word of God, the scriptures, the written word that you gave to us, though there are laws and though there are commandments, God, it is not primarily a rule book, but God, it is a story. It is a story of you, God, entering into uh, a rescue mission, a rescue operation to uh, seek and save and redeem your creation from sin and death. And God, today as we look at this idea of the story, we want to be like the disciples who, who did understand, who did get it. So God, we ask that you would um, flip the light switch, as it were, in our hearts and our minds so that we could seek to understand what it is you're teaching. And God, we don't want to just understand so that our, our brains are puffed up and full of information. We really want to understand so that we can worship you. And we want to understand so that we can tell others about this grand story that you're writing, this gospel, this rescue mission. So God, would you cause the scriptures to come alive in our hearts? Would you send the Holy Spirit right now to cause that to happen and that our eyes would be focused on the hero of the story whose name is Jesus and it's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. 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 You know, everybody loves a, a good story. I would, I would say that even uh, those who are maybe more technical in their mindset and their orientation, maybe engineers or people like that, everybody loves a good story. In fact, there is no such thing as a culture in human history that does not have stories as part of the fabric of their culture. Every single culture has some form of storytelling, some form of narrative as a way of unifying, as a way of teaching, as a way of instructing, or maybe even just recording the history of their culture. I think back to the ancient Greeks or the ancient Romans as they have all of their pantheon of gods and goddesses, and they've got you know, heroes like Hercules who do great stories and great exploits. Or I think of um, Native American culture where uh, the more indigenous type of people and the tribal uh, uh, practice of passing down stories through verbal tales and, and not having uh, as much written, but a lot of it just being done verbally. Or I think of even our own American culture, we have, you know, things like uh, uh, the founding fathers and the stories of how America came to be. And some of those stories are very compelling, like Paul Revere. But we also have folklore tales like, uh, uh, what's the dude with the big blue ox? Uh, uh, Paul Bunyan, thank you. Really deeply meaningful story to me, you can tell, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, right? These, these stories in American culture that are here to instruct us, teach us, train us. I would even say this, okay? Uh, on Super Bowl Sunday, before uh, the Seahawks annihilate the evil empire and Darth Belichick, right? Um, we, we are not going to just watch a game today. When you watch the, the football game, assuming you will, you're going to see that they're going to spend hours and hours and hours telling you the story of 
the season, how the Seahawks got here, how the Patriots got here. Uh, you're going to see stories of how the individual players went from rags to riches, went from obscurity to greatness. The, the idea of story is even going to drive the biggest sporting competition uh, in, in, in the world. Well, in America anyways. I won't mention World Cup because some of you will get upset about that. But <clears throat> the idea of story is really what drives everything, whether it's the simple paintings of a caveman on the wall of a cave or our multi-billion dollar Hollywood entertainment industry, we love stories. And I would even go so far as to say that we were made for stories. Before we jump into the text today, I really actually want to spend a, a decent chunk of time setting up the context for where we're going and how we can understand these parables of Jesus. So I want to ask a, a few questions that will help us frame up the scriptural teaching, the biblical teaching that we're going to look at today, but because I want us to be thinking clearly, I want us to not just dive in and make assumptions, I want us to have a good understanding of what we're looking at. So let's ask a couple of questions first by way of, of introduction. The first question is this, what is a parable? Just very simply, what is a parable? The literal meaning, the literal definition of the term parable means putting things side by side. You set things side by side and then you are able as the hearer to draw the conclusions about the ways in which those things are alike. It's related to the word, um, uh, it's related to the word allegory, which means putting things or saying things in a different way. I want to say something to you, but I'm going to say it in a different way so that it actually captures your attention and carries some meaning. Most typically, a parable features human characters as opposed to a fable. If you're familiar with Aesop's fables, a lot of those are about an animal, you know, a duck or a, a swan or whatever. Uh, those sorts of tales are animal-centered. Usually the parables are more human-centered. It's not always because today we're going to look at a lot of agricultural sort of metaphors, the, the seeds and the plants growing, but typically a parable has a human character. Some parables can be very simple. Some can be complex. Uh, there are other parables in the Bible. There are other parables besides the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus is the most well-known for his use of parables. And so some of his are very simple. Uh, I chose some examples from Luke so that we'd be in a different book of the Bible than we're currently studying. Luke 6, it says that he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? That's it. One verse, that's the parable that Jesus says. If you're blind and somebody else is blind and you're trying to lead them, you're both going to crash and burn. That's the parable. Very simple one, complex one, Luke chapter 15, the story of the prodigal son. It's 22 verses long. There's three scenes, there's different characters, there's main characters, there's supporting cast. It gets into the, the thoughts and the emotions and the motivations of the characters. It's quite a complex story. And it ends with a plot twist. So that's the fourth thing, is parables were not, they're not intentioned to just teach you some moral truth. You're not supposed to walk away from a parable with, well, wasn't that a nice story? I feel lifted up inside. No, they're designed to cause a reaction in the hearers. They're designed to cause a, a, a response we're going to see this time and time again in the parables of Jesus that we read today, but I want to read to you from the New Bible Dictionary. They have a great quote that I think uh, explains it well. This is what they say. It says, Many of the parables of Jesus are not merely illustrations of general principles. Rather, they embody messages which cannot be conveyed in any other way. The parables are the appropriate form of communication for bringing to men the message of the kingdom since their function is to jolt them into seeing things in a new way. They are means of enlightenment and persuasion intended to bring the hearers to the point of decision. So the parable is not simply a nice spiritual story with a nice spiritual truth. It demands a response. Next question is this, and I want to ask this question is, well, how should we understand the parables? How can we understand the parables? Uh, I would say that maybe aside from the book of Revelation, the parables are some of the most misunderstood aspects of the scripture, aspects of the Bible, portions of the scripture that are, are often mis, misused. And I'll read a quote from uh, one biblical scholar, Grant Osborne. This is what he says. He says, Parables have been among the most written about, yet hermeneutically abused portions of scripture. Hermeneutics just means how do you study the Bible, the way you go about studying the Bible. They are the most dynamic, yet the most difficult to comprehend of the biblical genres. 
The potential of the parable for communication is enormous since it creates a comparison or a story based upon everyday experiences. However, that story itself is capable of many meanings and the modern reader has much difficulty interpreting it as did the ancient hearers. So in light of this difficulty, I want to give you six principles, six hermeneutic principles, if I can use that big word, to follow as we read the parables. We're actually going to use these today as we study the parables. So the first one of the, par- the, first one of the principles is note the context, okay? That is probably the most important thing I could tell you about how to read the Bible, period. Pay attention to the context. It is a very common mistake that people make when they're reading the Bible to just grab one verse, pull it out of context, and misuse it, right? Uh, one theologian, I remember hearing him teaching, he says, uh, you know, all of the best heresies come from Scripture because you can make Scripture say whatever you want it to say as long as you ignore the context. You know, I've, I, you know I remember hearing a story about one time a uh, a guy was wrestling with God. I said, God, I just want to do what your word says. I just want to do what your word says. And he said, I'm just going to flip open to a random page. I'm going to do what your word says. And he flipped open to a page and put his finger on a verse that says, and Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> Not a good one to just pull out of context. Like, God, I'm just going to follow you. No, no, no. So you need to pay attention to the context. What is the whole section of scripture saying? What is the whole chapter? What is, what is the whole book about? If you're reading a parable, Jesus launches into a story. What was the discussion about before he got into that story? What were they arguing about? What about the historical context? Are there things that they're saying that we just kind of don't understand because we live in a very different culture? Note the context. That's the most important thing I can say to you about reading the Bible, period. Here's the second thing is, in a parable, it's very important to identify the central truth. What's, what's the main big idea of the parable? The purpose of the parable was usually to teach one thing, to cause one reaction, and not to get spun off into all the details, which is our third point is be very careful to not push the details. If you want some bad examples of that, you could read some of the biblical scholars from the Middle Ages. They loved to take the parables, in fact, anything in the scriptures, and get so uh, granular, get so myopic that they would actually lose the main point of the parable. You know, you got a parable about the mustard seed and the birds coming and, and settling in its branches. Like, well, this branch represents people coming from Syria, and this other branch represents a special place in the kingdom of God for left-handed people with red hair. And like, it, it just, you think I'm joking, but it's about that level of, of goofiness where they push the details too far. So point two and point three are stick to the main point. Don't push the details too far. Number fourth point that I would give you, principle to apply, is check the other Gospels. You know, there are four books of the Bible. We call them Gospels. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four different authors telling us the story of the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And they are not in competition, but they are complementary, even though at times they do differ in some of the details. They give us different perspective. Not conflicting details, but just different perspectives. So sometimes you can read a parable in one gospel account, and then you go and read one of the other gospel accounts, they tell it in a little bit of a different way, and you get some different meaning out of it. Or maybe you get a fuller idea of what was really going on. Number five, this is important with parables. Like I said, look for the plot twist. Look for the unexpected. Look for something that would just shock you. And this is particularly hard for us, again, because we are, we are many, many cultures removed from their culture. You know, any of you ever had this experience where you tell somebody a joke, but they don't have all the right information needed to like get it, and then you have to explain it to them, and then they go, oh, okay, well, I get it now, but it's not really that funny. Anybody else have that experience, or is that just my joke telling, okay? Um, you know, you tell somebody a joke, and there's just not quite enough information to get it, One of the commentators I was reading this week said that that is very often our experience with the parables. Those who would be the original hearers would have been startled by the punchline, as it were, of the parables. And we we miss it. And so for us, it's very important to look for the twist, to look for the unexpected. I read uh, Gordon Fee retells the story of the prodigal, I'm sorry, not the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, right? You've heard of the parable of the good Samaritan. He says, imagine there's a family standing on the side of the road. They're dressed in rags. Their car is broken down. They're just standing there. 
and a pastor sees him on the side of the road, it's raining, and he just drives by and says, oh, I'm really busy, I've got to get to church, I can't, I can't be late for worship practice. And a few minutes later, a, a bishop goes by in his robe and says, I'm very important, I've got to go serve communion to my people. And then a third car goes by and it's an atheist who's never been to church in his life, never believed in Jesus. He pulled over, he took him in, he drove him to a hotel, paid for their lodging, and then went on his way. Kind of offend you a little bit as I tell that story? That would be that idea of Jesus telling a story that was meant to shock and, and, and cause a reaction. So look for the twist. And then lastly, and, 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 and honestly, most importantly, is we have to ask the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we can hear the parables. We might have some sort of an intellectual understanding, but apart from the Spirit's illuminating work, it won't actually go down deep into our hearts. So I would encourage you when you're reading the Bible, period, but especially when you're reading the parables, Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand. God, would you help me understand this? Holy Spirit, you inspired this book to be written. Would you give me insight into how you want this to be read? I want to ask one more question before we dive into the parables itself. I know this is a, a lot by way of introduction, but I think it's very important for us as we frame this up. The third question is, why did Jesus use so many parables? In the, the verses that I already read, the, the kind of anchor verse, the central text, it said that Jesus did not even preach without using parables. It, it, to, to flip it around, it says he always used parables when he preached. Always. Many parables. In fact, it says that these are just a, a representation of the parables that he used. So why did Jesus use parables so much? The first reason, I think, is the, the ability of story to really cut to the heart. I love systematics. I love studying theological categories. I like kind of nerd stuff like that. But even as much as I like systematics, there are sometimes when just a well-told story just cuts to the heart and causes a reaction more than just pure intellectual knowledge does. Amen? As much as you might like categories, as much as you might like information, there's something about a story that can just get right to the heart. I think of, um, I think of like a political cartoon or something, right? You know, uh, there are people who you know, love to listen to talk radio or watch cable news or study politics a lot. But for me, about my attention span and all that is about a political cartoon, okay? I can get all the information I need and the perspective I need, right? You know, one panel, I know that the donkey is Democrats, I know the elephant's the Republicans, and I can understand it from there. That's about my attention span, right? Just a short, sweet little example that illustrates the truth. I think the second reason why Jesus spoke in parables, and we're going to see this in just a minute in the first parable that we look at is to identify those with faith. Just a few verses in, we're going to see that Jesus expects that a lot of people aren't going to get it. There's an expectation that he's going to share the story, he's going to share the parable, and a lot of people just, they aren't going to get it. They won't understand what it is that he's saying. Some are hard-hearted and they're unable to hear the gospel message, and so when he tells the story, it identifies those who have saving faith. The third reason is just a very simple one. I believe it's just to aid in the memorization. I could recount 15 points and 27 subpoints of systematic theology, or I could tell you a story. Even a child could listen to that story and be able to go out and retell it to their classmates at school. Uh, you know, mnemonic devices, ways of learning things are very, very helpful. I can to this day, I kid you not, I can recite all of the presidents of the United States from George Washington to President Obama because of a song that I learned in fifth grade. I'm not going to sing it to you now, but if you need proof, I will meet you in the foyer after the service. Don't you awe me. I'm not going to do it right now. I'm just saying I could. But it's because of a learning device. They taught me a song, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison. I'm not going to do it. I just proved to you that I could, right? But I think that a lot of times, you know, you have to remember this was in a largely illiterate society. People in the, the day and age that Jesus was teaching to did not read. And even if they did read, they did not necessarily have their own copy of the scrolls. It's not like they would sit down with their cup of coffee and their French press and then whip out the scroll you know, on the desk and start reading their morning devotionals. That's just not how their culture worked. They would listen. They were much more of an, of an auditory, an oral history tradition. And so they would listen and stories were a simple way for Jesus and other teachers to bring home powerful theological truths, powerful truths about God in a way that they could remember. And then lastly, and this is, this is where we're going to really land uh, at the end of our time together today, but it is this. I believe it's because we were made for story. I believe we were made for story. I, 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 more on this later, but just to tee it up, I, I do not believe that it's an accident that every single human culture that we've ever known about or studied 
has storytelling built into the fabric of who they are. If, if, if every culture has storytelling, and if every human being is created in the image and likeness of God, then there must be a grand storyteller who is weaving together the most amazing story that has ever been told. Okay? We're going to get into that a little bit later at the end. But let's do this. All of that introduction, let's dive into Mark chapter 4. If you got your Bibles, Mark chapter 4, we're going to start right in verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen, or you can remember your Bible next Sunday. All right. Did that, that was my outside voice. Sorry. <laughs> Verse 1, and again, he began to teach beside the sea. This is Jesus. He's teaching. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and he sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. So picture this large crowd. Jesus, uh, Mark wants us to know that Jesus often had large crowds around him. So he gets into a boat and, and men, those of you who are boat enthusiasts, I already said you can't proof text. You can't say, well, Jesus was into boats. I mean, Maybe you could, but that would probably be failing the, the, the context test that I told you a minute ago. He got into a boat. He was teaching the whole crowd. They were on the land, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, listen, a sower went out to sow. This is a, a farmer. This is someone who plants seed, not a, not a needle and thread sower, but planting seeds, sowing seeds. And as he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now let me make one quick observation here again by, by way of sort of explaining the punchline to you because none of you gasped when I said 30, 60, and 100-fold. None of you gasped. I'm guessing we don't have a lot of farmers here today. Uh, that's okay, but let me explain this to you. In, 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 in my study this week, what I found is that commentators would agree that about a seven and a half fold return would be a good average year. You harvest your seed, you, harvest, you, you plant the seeds, you harvest your grain, and you take the seeds you have, and next year, if you plant it back in, about seven and a half times your, your planting, that would be a good year. In fact, a tenfold return would be a very good year. That would be a very good year, Jesus says 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. That is nothing short of miraculous. A divine intervention in the growth of this year's crops. Maybe uh, this is probably not a perfect analogy, but let me give you one example. You take your money, you put it into a savings account, right? Your savings account, uh, on average in America, how much does a savings account yield percentage-wise? Three, four, six. Somebody in the first service said zero. I told them they need to switch banks, right? You know, it's, it's a couple. It's a couple percentage points, right? Your, your money slowly accumulates some interest over time. If I told you that there was an account that gave 200% return on investment, you would all leave the service and you would go sign up for that bank account right now. That's the type of just craziness that Jesus was talking in the story. That's the shocking moment. Let's continue on. Verse 10, because we're going to see this one explained for us. This is what it says. When he was alone, those around him with the 12. So, so there's Jesus' 12 disciples, but there's others around him. Those around him with the 12 asked about the parables, and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. What's the secret of the kingdom of God? Who is the secret of the kingdom of God? It's Jesus. He is the secret. He's the key that unlocks everything. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God because basically what it's saying because you know me. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and they may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. This, this is a, uh, an interesting passage because on first glance it could look like Jesus is saying, well, I'm trying to trick them. I want you to know the secrets, but I'm, I'm trying to confuse them. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying at all. 
And most of the scholars and commentators I read this week could agree with me. What Jesus is saying is, this is how bad the problem is. This is how hard the hearts are of the people. This is how dull their ears are. Even though I'm speaking these things to them, they just don't get it. And he quotes from the prophet Isaiah because this was the exact same problem that the people of God in the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Jewish people, had that God had done mighty deeds for them. He had released them from slavery in Egypt. He had freed them from their oppressors. He had delivered them miraculously time and time again, and they just didn't get it. They would not respond to the God who was relentless in his pursuit of them. What Jesus is saying is, this is the problem. They don't really truly understand. Listen, the Bible never teaches that spiritual knowledge is just in your intellect. When the Bible speaks of spiritual knowledge, it involves all of who you are. You don't know something just because you can recite it. You know something because you can live it. You don't know something just because you have the information. You know something when your life evidences transformation. You know how, um, you ever had a conversation with somebody where they're talking a big game, like they know something, but you can tell that they just read it on Wikipedia, right? When somebody's talking about something that they know, but then like maybe you actually work in that field. So um, just this morning, before the services started early, uh, I was talking with some of the guys in our production team, and I used the word subnet in a group of guys that work in IT, okay? And uh, that was about as far out on that limb as I was willing to go. I, I knew the word, I didn't have any idea what it meant, and so I just left that right there and walked off, right? I, when, when, somebody, when somebody knows something, you can tell. It's more than just, I'm reciting words. It's more than I'm just talking about it. It's actually, I know this because I've lived it, or I know it because I've experienced it. That's what the Bible means with knowing, understanding, perceiving. And if they would understand, if they would just hear, if they would just listen and just respond, what is it that's waiting for them? Forgiveness? God's heart is to give people forgiveness, but our hearts are hard. Apart from God's grace, our hearts are very, very hard, and our eyes are dull, and our ears are dull, and we don't want to hear truth as God gives it to us. So the question is not, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you understand? But really, rather, how will you respond? And this is what, this is what Jesus says. Picking back up in verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? It's like Jesus saying, I gave you an easy one at first. How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. The preaching of the word. We know that this is a reference to Jesus himself because already in Mark's gospels, multiple times we have seen it said that Jesus is preaching the word. So Jesus, the sower, sows the word. And there's the four categories. These are the ones along the path. First category. When the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Okay? Category number one is people who hear the message of Jesus, who hear the message of the gospel, and they are non-responsive. They're flatlined. No response whatsoever. And he says that Satan is the one that comes and takes that word from their heart. Second category, the rocky ground. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, when they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. Okay, there's some response. It's joyful. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. I have known Christians like this. I have known people like this, maybe I should say where they have some sort of response to Jesus, they have some sort of, you know, oh, that just sounds really good, but then things get tough and they just walk away and go back to their old ways. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. This is the third category. And I'll just tell you right now, this third category is the one that's given me the most heartburn this week as I've been studying and preparing. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. They hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. How are the thorns choking something if there wasn't actually some growth? Some response, some growth, completely choked out and completely unfruitful. 
And I'll tell you this, the reason why this one concerns me the most is because I know us. And I'm speaking specifically to those of us in the north end of Seattle. Our area tends to be a little more affluent, a little bit more comfortable. People have things like a retirement account and two cars and a two-car garage. It can be very easy to be consumed by the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, the cares of the world. This is the one that really stirred in my heart because um, it's hard to know this, this growth comes. There's some sort of response to the gospel. But there just is no fruit whatsoever. And it breaks my heart because I have known people who profess to follow Jesus, people who say they love Jesus, people who can say right doctrine. Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose again on the third day. But when you look at their life, there's just no fruit. And when I say fruit, I mean the fruit as Jesus describes it, the way that the Apostle Paul would say in, in, in the New Testament that there's no growth in love or joy or peace or patience or kindness or goodness or faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. Where's the evidence of the work of the Spirit in their life? Where's their heart to go and tell people who are lost and dying about the good news of Jesus? There's no fruitfulness. I'm not talking about just working hard and getting things done. I'm talking about the evidence that the Spirit has actually taken life in them and there's growth and they look more like Jesus. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about progress. I just had an opportunity to visit with a friend this last week on my, on my uh, trip back home to uh, Alaska and visited with her for a while. And I had a flashback to her in high school and the, the, the person that she is today, there is literally no other explanation other than God's miraculous Holy Spirit that she is a different person. She's a different person. And I'm not even talking about the like, you know, really wild testimony stories that sometimes you hear on church services like, you know, a, a drug dealing anarchist and, you know, worshiping Satan or something like that. I'm just talking about someone who did not love Jesus, someone who did not have the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit growing in their life. She's a different person today by God's grace. So I know God can change people. And this is the one that, that, that kept me up last night, praying for us, thinking about us. Which type of soil might we be the most prone to be? Verse 20, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Their lives show the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. They're not the person that they used to be. This isn't really a story about agriculture. It really is a story about response versus non-response. I mean, there's four, different, there's four different types of soil, but really you could categorize it into two. There's non-responsive and responsive. Those who hear the word and kind of nothing really happens with it. Maybe a little response, maybe some half-hearted response or a full response to Jesus. So which type of soil are you? Which type of soil are you concerned you could become apart from Jesus' grace in your life? Do you hear the words of Jesus and do you take action to respond or do you coast through life using Jesus as a convenient help me card when you get in a tight spot? Are you committed to his vision of seeing the kingdom of God come to earth just like it is in heaven? Let's look at the second parable because this idea of response is going to continue. Remember, with the context, practicing the principle that we already talked about, we need to keep that context in mind. We're talking about response to the word of God. Verse 21, he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? You don't, you don't light a lamp and then put it underneath a blanket or underneath your bed. You put it up on a stand. For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So again, this light shining, we're talking about the message of the gospel. We're talking about the good news of the kingdom. It is not meant to stay hidden, but it is meant to be proclaimed. It is meant to be shown brightly. And he says, I think it's interesting because we've already seen several times in the first few chapters where Jesus has said, hey, don't tell anybody about this or keep it quiet. That idea of kind of keeping it secret because it's the right at the right time, the message is to be fully revealed. I think of this, my wife used the analogy last night of a Christmas present, right? You wrap up a Christmas present, you hide it, you keep it secret so that at the right time, 
It can be open. It can be revealed. It can be celebrated. So we proclaim this message, and he says to them, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is about the response. The light's shining. What's the measure of your response? Is your response to Jesus half-hearted? Well, then you shouldn't be surprised with Mediocre fruit. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Look, if your response to Jesus is not very much, it's, it's not gonna, you're not going to see that perpetuate and grow. But to those who hear the message of the gospel and respond with that full-hearted devotion, the message of the kingdom is perpetual growth. It will grow more in your heart. The idea of, of a perpetual return on investment, if I could use that language. In the farming world, if you have a really good year, it means you harvest your grain, you have more seeds to harvest the next year. And this, you know, as long as you don't become lazy or barring some natural disaster, you have more seeds to plant, you grow a bigger harvest the next year that gives you more seeds, you plant, you have a bigger harvest, it's, it's kind of like that. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is kind of like that. There's a perpetual return on investment. With the measure you use, the measure you will be added to. What's your response to Jesus? This will continue us through the, the next parable. This is what he said, verse 26, the parable of the seed growing. He says, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, more farming. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he does not know how. Okay? Any of you people who have a good thumb and you claim to know how to actually get plants to do what you want, you're lying, okay? He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He does not know how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. By the way, I think these agricultural metaphors have a lot to say to our impatient, hurry-up microwave culture in the United States of America. All of these agriculture... If any of you have ever tried to grow some fruits or vegetables, my mother-in-law has an amazing vegetable garden, and I actually like vegetables, and so I'm always excited to get some of the the harvest of the crops, and it always seems like every time I go over all summer long, are they ready yet? Are they ready yet? Are they ready yet? They just stink and take a long time. I'm bad at vegetables, okay? You're seeing it displayed fully in front of you on Sunday morning. But that's because we live in a microwave, hurry up, I want what I want, I want it now sort of culture. Like we, listen, we're not even used to the idea that certain fruits and vegetables shouldn't even be available to us year-round, right? Like I can just, like, I can just go to the store. I was in Alaska. It was three, all of three degrees. I heard it was 60 here. If I seem a little agitated today, that's why. It was three degrees, and then I went and got fresh strawberries. Like, that's not reality. That's lunacy, right? <laughs> Our culture doesn't have the connection that these people would have had to the idea that sometimes good things are worth waiting for. Sometimes things take some time. And what Jesus is saying here is that this kingdom of God it just grows. It grows on its own. You're not God. You're not sovereign. You don't make it grow. God makes it grow. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus will build his church. Jesus will grow the kingdom. God will grow the kingdom. We watch it happen, but we don't even know how it happens. And it goes slower than we wish it would. Amen? Sometimes you ever looked at your own life, like, man, I wish I was growing in godliness a little bit faster. You ever looked at your spouse and thought, I wish they were growing in godliness a little faster. Right? You ever looked at your community? You ever read the newspaper and thought, boy, I wish the kingdom would come sooner. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's a reference to the day of judgment. That comes from the book of Joel, the Old Testament prophet, the book of Joel. Speaking of the sickle coming, this is a, a metaphor, a picture for one day as the kingdom of God grows, God has appointed a day and a time when Jesus Christ will come back and the sickle will be put to the wheat and all will be laid waste. And those that have trusted in Jesus will stand forever and those who have rejected Jesus will be judged. The kingdom grows, make no mistake about it, but also a day of judgment is coming. Do you know Jesus? Do you know his grace? 
Do you know that forgiveness that was spoken of a few verses ago? Last parable, the parable of the mustard seed. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. You know, he's probably talking at this time to maybe a couple of dozen followers, talking this grand vision for the kingdom of God, and they're looking around like, hey, we all kind of could fit into a, you know, we could all fit into a, a suburban. Like, really, this big, of a, this big of a picture, this big of a plan? And Jesus is saying, yeah, it looks really tiny, but the kingdom of God looks that way, and then it grows and becomes bigger than you could have ever imagined. And I love that it says, puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The kingdom of God is a place of healing, a place of safety. The world is scorching, to use that metaphor. Those who have lived life for any length of time, you know that there are pains, there is heat, there's scorching, burning sunlight that comes that leaves you feeling a little, wet, uh, little withered, a little dry, a little toasted. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is like a, like a tree where the birds can come and land and find rest in its shade. And I also love, it's another Old Testament prophetic reference, the, the birds of the air means, it, it means all the nations. Jesus is speaking here to Jewish people, to the people of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, but he's reminding them that the whole point is for all of the nations, people from every race and tongue and tribe and nation to find their nest in the shade of the kingdom of the God. That's what Jesus is saying. So we've looked at all of these parables. We've, we've, we've looked at them all kind of individually. And I, I want to bring this time to a close just by reminding you what I said at the beginning. It's not just that Jesus was a good storyteller in his earthly ministry. It's that God himself is a good storyteller. We are living in the greatest story that's ever been told. Here, here is an outline is a outline of the story as we see it in the scriptures. God created. God created the heavens and the earth. He created them perfect. He created them free from sin. He created them free from harm. He created them free from devastation. But mankind rebelled and chose to go their own way. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, said, no, thank you, God. We would like to be in charge. And because of their foolishness and their sin and their rebellion, all of the world has been plunged into sinfulness destruction, disease, death. God then selects one man. The man's name is Abraham. And he makes a promise. He says, you know what, Abraham? I'm going to use you and your descendants to be a blessing to all of the nations of the earth. And he founded the nation of Israel. He was the father of that nation. And Israel was supposed to be God's agent to bring blessing to all of the world. But you know what Israel did? Failed. Time and time and time again, they failed to live up to the calling that God had given to them to bring his good, wise, loving rule, his good kingdom to the earth. Israel failed, and then indeed Israel themselves needed to be rescued. And the story of Israel starts out promising, and it just continues to fizzle down until all of the people of Israel were taken away into captivity, and there's really no people left in God's promised land until one day at the appointed time, God sent his son, born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life free from sin. His name is Jesus, and he lived a perfect life. He, in the twist, in the shocking, unexpected twist, he died in our place for our sins. How, how does that make sense in the story? A God who comes down to deal with sin and he doesn't just wipe out all of the sinful people. No, he himself takes our sin upon himself. That is shocking. That's the part that if we weren't so familiar with it, we would gasp that God himself would die in our place for our sins. But actually, that's not even the big twist because the real shock happened three days later after Jesus was crucified and buried and put in the ground. He came out of the tomb alive and well, glorified and resurrected, proving that everything he ever said was true, that he can forgive sin, that he can rescue and redeem, that he can bring God's kingdom to earth in a way that Israel failed to do. Jesus is the one. 
He's the peak, he's the pinnacle, he's the crescendo of the entire story. It's always pointing to Jesus. And then after that scene, we now enter into the age of the church. You know, in every good story, there's the big moment and then there's working it out. You know what we're in right now? We're in the working it out phase. How does what Jesus did apply to every corner of the known universe? How does what Jesus did apply to your life? How does Jesus, what Jesus' work on the cross apply to us as a church? And then God gives us the end of the story. One day, after this time of waiting, Christ returns, does away with sin and death once and for all, sets right everything, and those who have trusted in Jesus enjoy him forever in perfect, resurrected, glorified bodies, free from sickness, free from aches and pains, free from disease. The world itself is set free from its bondage to corruption and decay, and we enjoy God himself forever in the presence of the Lamb and in the presence of the angels. That's the ending of the story. Not to spoil it for you, but that's what's going to happen. And we live now, today, we live in light of all of the story that has happened and the story conclusion as we know it to be. One writer, N.T. Wright, uses a really helpful analogy. He says, you know, if you imagine that you went into an attic somewhere and you found a Shakespearean play that nobody had ever seen before. It was a brand new play. It was all lost. And he said, we've got the first four or five acts and then there's this missing chunk, but then we get the conclusion again. You could get a troop of actors together, you could get a troop of Shakespearean actors together and you could act out the play and you would improvise that part based on what you know about the story and based upon what you know about the ending. He says that's kind of like what it's like for us as people of God right now in the age that we're in. We don't have a script. We have a great storyteller whose name is Jesus. How will you live in light of that story? And I want to say to you, if you are not a Christian, you're living for your own story. You've set up a, a, a story, the story arc is very short. You might have 60, 70, 80, 100 years, that's it, your story's done. And you're the central character of the story. It's all about you. And everybody else, including God, is just a supporting cast member to prop up the story of you. And I would invite you, I would plead with you, be a part of the story that God's writing. His story is bigger than any one of us, amen? His story is bigger than any one of our individual stories. Christians, those of you who are Christians, I would say to you, it is so easy to fall back into the pattern of making the story be all about me. If you can't say amen, you at least ought to say ouch, right? We fall into that pattern so easily. I am the star of the story. God is a supporting cast member to make my life feel better or look better or whatever. No, no, no. The story is God's story. All of human history is his story. And it's better to be a small bit player in the grandest story that's ever told than to be the supporting, I'm sorry, the starring character of a really terrible and pretty pathetic story, if you don't mind me saying that. If you do mind me saying it, I'm sorry, I already said it. It's better to be, you know, it's better to be a, a tree in the back of the, the play than to be standing in front and center on a stage that is ultimately going to be cut off from God and him forever. Are you living your story or are you living God's story? Do you see Jesus, the storyteller, as weaving a tale that's much bigger than anything you and I could put together or do you see yourself standing alone? I invite you to find yourself in the greatest story that's ever been told where the hero of the story, his name is Jesus, and we're invited in because of the shocking twist of his death and his resurrection. So I'm going to invite you to response today. We're going to respond as we do in a few ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the, the giving of our tithes and offerings. And so I'd like to invite the financial stewards to come forward now and prepare for that. If you, if you are a guest, you're under no obligation to give, you're welcome to if you'd like, but this is something that we do as a church family to uh, participate in the work of the ministry that God's called us to. And Jesus talked about money a lot. And money is not the only way that you respond to God, but it is certainly one of the ways that you respond to God and you don't let your money rule over you. So I invite you to give cheerfully, sacrificially. I say by way of reminder, if you're making a check, make it out to Sound City Bible Church. If you are uh, want to give online, there's good options for that as well. While they're passing uh, the offering buckets, I'm going to throw up some discussion questions on the screen. I want you to talk about these this week in your community groups.
First one is, do you acknowledge the importance of storytelling in communicating the gospel? I, I know that there's at least a few of you in here who are real systematic types and you like to get into categories of, of, of thinking, and I would just encourage you, how are you in storytelling when you're sharing the gospel? First of all, the, the gospel story, but also your own story and how it fits in. Second question is, how can we proclaim the kingdom of God in a language that people recognize? Like I talked about earlier, you know, Jesus making these stories making the, the truths about the kingdom more memorable. So how can we do that? I think we need to be thinking creatively. Not getting creative with the truths themselves, but just in how we communicate them. Third question is, how might your heart, let's do some personal checkup, how might your heart be like the bad soils? Unresponsive, falling away, choked by worldly cares. Number four, let's talk about some praise and some evidence of God's grace. How do you see the kingdom growing in your life or in our church or in our region or in the world? And then lastly, how are you seeking greater understanding of Jesus' teaching? I don't want you to just think, oh, well, I've, I've understood it all. I want you to invest in, in a greater understanding and a deeper understanding. So there's some questions to discuss. I'll put all of this up online on our Sound City Online community. If you're not a part of that, we'd love to get you signed up. You can do that at the Connect Desk. We're also going to respond with the celebration of the Lord's table, communion. This is where we take the bread and we dip it into the wine or the juice, depending on your conscience, and we celebrate the crescendo of the story, the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a good reminder today when you take communion that it's not about you. It's not your story. It's Jesus' story. So when you take communion today, may you be reminded of that very important truth. If you are a Christian, even if you're a guest or a visitor at our church, you are welcome to celebrate the Lord's table with us. We practice an open table to all believers. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, you are more than welcome to become a Christian today. Give your sin to Jesus. Receive his forgiveness and come celebrate the Lord's table with us for the first time. And we're also gonna sing. The band is gonna lead us in some songs about the grace of God and about the grand story of the gospel. And so I would invite you to sing with joy and with celebration. I'm going to invite you to stand if you would. I'm going to read this verse one more time. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you do give us understanding of your word. Even that many of these things are, are beyond us, God, we, we know that you teach us and you instruct us in your wisdom. It's not our wisdom we want. We want your wisdom. God, my hope and my prayer today is that all of us would respond to you, the, the one who is putting together the greatest story that's ever been told. Would we respond? Would we take ourselves out of the seat of the hero of the story? Would we see Jesus as the hero of the story? And God, my prayer is that as we do that, we would see your kingdom come to earth. 